we are going to continue now our series in the life of Joseph. Um, so we're going to be working out of Genesis chapter 30, uh, 43. So if you have a Bible, do turn there. But if you don't, don't worry at all. I'll be, um, I'll be reading it out as we go. This is actually our 10th week in the series of Joseph. Um, but last week, we sort of entered into a new phase in the narrative, a phase that I am calling, certainly the Bible doesn't call it this, but I am calling God's Great Reunion Project. Because this is a time where, um, as we saw beginning last week, Joseph has been our main focus so far. Um, and he's been separated from his family for 20 years. They sold him off into slavery and he's been in Egypt. Um, but now his family are coming back into the story. And we saw last week how God is beginning to just move all of the pieces to bring them back together. And we've seen that uh, as this is a, it is a family drama, it is about the characters involved. But what, what we saw happening and beginning to come to the fore last week is how this family drama is actually also a story about how God is the prime mover. And he is the one that is working through this global crisis to bring about a reunion of a people who have been separated, which I don't know about you, but I find a very encouraging narrative for our times. But God is not just about joining his people together in this time. Again, what we also saw is that God is about transforming his people in their time of separation and working through a, a global crisis in order to, before bringing his people back together, change them for the good. So that they are not only together again, but they are more ready than ever to step into and move into the purposes that he has for them. And again, I just don't you want that for yourself? As we find ourselves in this time that none of us would choose and in a click of a fingers, if we could get rid of it, or we all would say that would be an amazing idea. But given that we're in this situation, don't you want to get everything that God might have for you in it? If God has some unique things that he wants to do in your life, don't you want to kind of lean into it, get the most from what he wants to do so that we might come out of it changed as a people we might come out of it changed as individuals looking more and more like what God wants us to be so that we're more ready than ever to step into what he wants us to do and so we're going to continue the narrative today and today's message I'm calling loss and plenty and we're going to see two separate um, accounts two separate episodes in this passage both of which show the, the, the hand of work, God at work in this family. And one, one will be an account of kind of a, a bit of loss and the other will be plenty, but both of them joined together by God Almighty being at work. So let's get started. Genesis chapter 43, and we'll work from verse one. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And again, here we are brought face to face with the desperateness of this situation. But this family, um, J Jacob, the father and the, and the brothers of Joseph, they are they're in Canaan and the, the famine is so severe that they are starting to starve. And last week we saw their first trip from Canaan to Egypt, the only place that has any food where they, they then brought some food. And we also were introduced to the dramatic tension that is underlying all of these passages that we're looking at. How when they, the brothers came to Egypt, they met this high ranking government official that was overseeing the whole food distribution program. And this actually happened to be their brother, Joseph, that they had sold into slavery and presumed dead. 
and the dramatic tension being that the brothers did not recognize who Joseph was at all, but Joseph did recognize his brothers and kept his identity secret. And so he gave them grain and sent them on their way, but said, look, if you ever want to come back, you have to bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, with you. And so that's exactly what's going on here. You notice how Judah says in verse three, the man solemnly warned us. He has no, no idea that his, that's actually his brother, Joseph. And he said, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so Je Judah saying that we need to take Benjamin with us to get grain. And this is a desperate situation. But Jacob, the father, will not let Benjamin go. And this is not a new conversation. This, we saw almost the same conversation happen right at the end of uh, chapter 42, where they, um, they say, look, we need to take Benjamin with us. And, and Jacob says, no way, you're going to try and kill him. Um, and this is just a, a classic family standoff that you have in any household, where one party wants to do something one way, another party wants to do another way, and neither one of them are going to budge. In our household, it is lights. Hannah likes to have the lights off. I like to have the lights on. And so we have this kind of silent, passive aggressive war going on in our household where we basically follow each other around the house, turning lights on and turning lights off as we desire. But here, the situation is becoming increasingly desperate. Something is gonna have to give. And in verses three through to 10, Judah, one of the, the brothers who's starting to emerge as the, the kind of leader in the family, he launches into this compelling speech to Jacob and saying, look, we need to go and get food in Egypt. You've got to let us take Benjamin. And he really lands his argument and nails it in verse eight, where he says this, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. That something about this, I think, just resonates and hits home for Jacob. That I think he's starting to see, look, if I don't send Benjamin with them, we're just all going to die anyway. We are that close and we are that short on food. But if I do send Benjamin with them, maybe there is a chance that we will survive. And so then finally in verse 13, he relents. He says, Take also your brother, arise, go again to the man. And this is an incredibly painful moment for Jacob. It's a painful moment because 20 years ago, he lost his favoured son, Joseph. And since losing him, he has poured all of his love and all of his affection into Benjamin. He has given himself and just said, Benjamin is the most precious thing and person to me. I'm not going to let ha happen to him what happened to Joseph. And now here, Benjamin has been taken from him and he has no power and no control over it. And then listen to what Jacob says afterwards, immediately following saying, take your brother. He then says, may God almighty grant you mercy before this man that he may send back your other brother and Benjamin. This is the first time in the whole Joseph narrative that we have heard Jacob say the word God, utter the name God. But it's not just that he says the name God that is significant, but it's the way that he chooses to talk of God that is 
that carries a lot of weight because he chooses to invoke the name El Shaddai, the Hebrew name for God that we have rendered here, God Almighty. He's not just saying, oh yeah, God. He's saying God Almighty. And what he's doing is he's evoking a, a conversation, a God revealing himself to him that happened way back in chapter 35, where God said this to, to Jacob. He said, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, the one with all, all of the power and all of the authority. This is God's self-revelation to Jacob. And then he goes on to say, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. That here God is revealing himself and showing himself to, to Jacob to be the God of, of blessing, of promise, of passing on of the covenant that was given to Abraham and to Isaac. Now it's been passed on to him that his, his favour and his goodness is coming to Isaac, uh, to Jacob. And so this incredibly painful moment of losing, from Jacob's perspective, all that he had is now followed by this powerful declaration of who God is. And here we're starting to see the beginning of a turning point in Jacob's life. The Jacob that we have seen so far in this narrative has been an old man, a, a bitter, wounded man in the grip of fear. Nothing like the, the, the Jacob of previous chapters, a man who was chosen by God, a man of faith, a man who heard God, a man who had a, a relationship with him, an intimate connection with God, a man who took God at his word and believed him in faith. And nothing like that man that we've met in this narrative. But as he speaks out this my God is, is not just a God, but my God is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. It's almost like he's reminding himself of who God is. It's almost like his, his soul and his spirit is being reawakened to the reality of God, that this is the God that was, was faithful and good to my grandfather Abraham. He was good and faithful to my father Isaac, so he will be good. He will be faithful to me, and he will be faithful for generations to come, including to my sons, including to Benjamin. He will show himself to be good. He will show that he is the God that does not let me down. And many of us right now, like Jacob, are experiencing very much the, the pain of loss. For you, it might be a very um, tangible and an acute sense, maybe family or, or friends, perhaps a loss of a job. For many of us, it will be a bit more immaterial. It will be the, the, the loss of motivation or the loss of joy or the loss of hope in this weird time that we find ourselves in. For others, it will be the loss of just lots of trivial things that made up our life before. I am feeling the pain and the loss of a good cup of coffee right now, and I'm waiting for God to move in power to open up our good coffee shop just around the corner again. But here we see that God is able to use very real pain and loss to bring about a turning point in our lives. And I wonder if that might be what he's doing for you. That maybe you don't know God at all. Maybe you have never heard of him or, or really seen him. You certainly haven't heard the name of God Almighty and, and you're not, you wouldn't really say necessarily that you're seeking him. 
but so much loss has happened in these times so much has been thrown up in the air that you just find yourself searching you're looking for something that you can rely on something that you can trust on or maybe you're just like Jacob where where your faith has, has kind of faded into the background your relationship with God has, is lying dormant and you found yourself just coasting through in, in quite a comfortable way in the in the last few months or years and then the last month has happened and you've realized how quickly and how suddenly that which you thought was so secure can be taken away and you're just being woken up to actually maybe I need to look again and turn again to God but maybe this is the kind of turning point that you need maybe God is using the pain of loss to turn you back to him so that you cry once again and call upon the name of God Almighty. So from verse 15 onwards, the brothers then head to Egypt and their hope very much is that they just get into Egypt, get what they need, get the grain, get their brother Simeon who's still there and then get out. This is every man going to a barber. Just I just want to get in I don't want any conversation. I don't want anything else. I just want to get what I came for. And then I want to get straight back out again. Picking it up in verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys and what's happened here is that the brothers have been brought into the house of, jo of Joseph very much what they did not want to happen they were hoping to kind of slip in and slip out getting their grain and here they've been brought in and the reason that they're so scared is because at the end of uh, last week's narrative, they, the money that they had used to pay for the grain in their first trip, they get back home and they realise that the money that they gave has now been replaced in their sacks. And they know that they used it to pay, but now they're totally fearful because they know they've got to go back to Egypt at some point to get more food. But how will they be received? Will they be accused of, of stealing it? And if they're brought into Joseph's house, that is exactly what they think. Is going on and so what then happens after this is that they they then run to the steward and try and get ahead of the situation and say look and plead their case just say look it's just a total misunderstanding we we definitely gave you the money please don't punish us please have mercy on us we we know how it appears but please try and understand it from our perspective we definitely gave you the money and then it the steward answers them in verse 23 he says this peace to you do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And of course, these words from the steward, the steward alleviate the fears of the brothers. But they also do far more. Last week, we saw that, again, just even though this is clearly a family drama or a drama of all the characters involved, we saw how it is, is God working through all of the circumstances that we see here to bring about his good and perfect plans. And I think a good way of um, thinking about God's providence and his, his activity in our life is to think of it as a soundtrack that is constantly there. 
And actually most of the time that soundtrack is turned right, right the way down. But we find ourselves in situations where eating a plowman sandwich at lunchtime and we think it is very difficult for me to see just how God has sovereignly ordained this moment and he's going to use it for his glory. But then there are other moments in our life where the volume of God's activity is turned right the way up. And we, we just see, oh my goodness, everything is coming together. And all of the, the little details that I paid no attention to at the time have all kind of come together in a single point. And God is clearly at work in my life. And what we're seeing here and what we're beginning to see is just the, the, the volume of God's activity in this narrative just starting to get turned up. We saw it a bit last week and now we see it even more so now. Because what the steward says is the one that is active here is your God and the God of your father. This is a remarkable thing for an Egyptian pagan man to be saying. Someone who's probably not really heard of the God of Israel certainly would not be a follower of the God of Israel. For him to say this is, he doesn't say this is some, uh, just a random supernatural occurrence. Uh, who knows who's behind it? Maybe it's our God, Ra, maybe it's your God um, and the God of your father or equally. I mean, it could be anything. God, it could just be fate. It could be the universe. It could be good karma. It could be astrology. No, he says, this is the work. The one that is moving here is your God. The one God, the God of your father, the one that we've just seen, has the name El Shaddai. He is the one that is moving. He's the one that's at work. And then that leads us on to what happens immediately after the steward speaks. Where it says, then he brought Simeon out to them, their brother. You might think, what is the significance of that? Well, here we have, for the first time, Joseph, uh, the, the 11 brothers, all of the 11 brothers together, and they're in Joseph's house, and he's about to come back. Picking it up in verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the presents that they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. Now, you might recognise this if you've been tracking through the whole series, but here we have a total and complete fulfilment of the dream that was given to Joseph over 20 years ago by God in chapter 37. All 11 brothers around him bowing down before him. Joseph had had this dream of sheaves of wheat, um, which he says, your sheaves, talking to the brothers, gathered around my sheaf, and bow down before it is what Joseph had dreamed and God had shown him. And here we have that exact dream coming to fulfillment. That this is a moment, this moment right here is a promised moment from God. This is exactly as God said it would be 20 years ago. Every intricate detail that has preceded it has all been leading to this moment that God wants the brothers right here, bowing down in total submission before Joseph. God wants Joseph right here in a position of total and complete authority and power over his brothers who are submitting themselves before him. The author has got the reader's attention at this point, just thinking, how is Joseph going to use this? What is going to happen next? 
these brothers are completely at the mercy of Joseph. These are the brothers, just to remind us, the brothers that beat him, that threw him into the pit, that caused him untold distress, who then sold him off into slavery to live the life of a slave, where Joseph was then wrongfully imprisoned and spent years, lost years of his life, languishing in a prison cell because of these brothers. Because of these brothers, he has been separated from his home. Because of these brothers, he's been separated from his family, from the promises of God. What be going through your head right now? And the way that brothers have interacted in the story of the Bible so far, we almost expect conflict and strife and competition. You think of Cain and Abel, you think of Jacob and Esau, it's strife, it's, it's, it's vengeance. And so we're expecting Joseph to act here in malice. But instead, what we see Joseph do is he does something pure, something righteous, and something Christ-like for his brothers. He prepares a table for them. These brothers that have caused him so much pain, that have damaged him so much, he welcomes into his dining hall, opens the door up for them and says, come. In verse 31, he says, serve the food. Now, anytime this would be an act of great kindness and mercy and generosity on Joseph's part. But let's not forget the context. What is the most costly and sacrificial thing that Joseph could do at this time in a time of great and extreme famine? Provide a full, abundant and rich meal for these ones that have hurt him so much. Not just any meal, a meal that we see in verse 16 in includes the slaughter of an animal. Now that is just very inefficient use of the precious grain that they have available. Rather than eating it themselves or making bread out of it that they can eat, using it to feed up an animal to then fatten the animal up and kill the animal to eat is incredibly inefficient use of resources. But for Joseph, now is not a time of efficiency. It's not a time, it's a time for extravagance. It's a time to wheel out the most precious delicacies that he has. This is a time for Joseph in all of his power, all of his authority, all of the position that he has over and against his brothers to go over the top in showing them the abundance and rich provision of his house to use all of his power to pour out blessing and goodness and kindness to them. As we look at this narrative, we know, Joseph knows, these brothers do not deserve any of it. They deserve nothing. They have not earned any credit whatsoever with Joseph. They they are entitled not even to the tiniest little crumbs that might come from his table, even though they're related by blood, the way that they have treated him. They, they deserve nothing of what he's about to give them. In fact, they deserve punishment. And yet Joseph, knowing all of that, welcomes them in and opens the door up to his dining hall of 
abundance. As they walk in, they fix their eyes on the feast that is ahead of them. There's no expense fed in this dining hall. There's bread, there's meat, there's Egyptian pastries, there's wine flowing and flowing in abundance. Just think of what this would be like for the brothers. They have been in Canaan just trying desperately to stretch this grain that they've got as far as it would possibly go, carefully portioning it out, waiting until just the very last minute until they can take it no more, just to have a tiny little mouthful to sustain them just for a few hours longer. It has been years, years since they've had a proper meal. And then they come into Joseph's house, they come to Egypt and boom, dinner is served. Just think what they would be like. Think what it would be like for them. And they just think, yeah, I'll, I'll have some of that. I've, I've never tried that. Oh yeah, yeah, six of those please. Uh, yeah, well, how about a whole bottle of wine? Don't mind if I do. Just think of the, the joy, the, the celebration, the happiness, the lightness of spirit as they enjoy all of this. It's what we see alluded to in verse 34, where it just says, they drank and they were merry with him. For the brothers, in this moment, all of their cares are taken away. They are just filled with satisfaction and contentment and joy and happiness as they share this moment with Joseph. And it's essential that as we understand this, that we connect all of the dots together. And so if you've drifted away or if you've I know, gone to check your email or whatever, come back because this is where it all comes together, that we see just how good and who God is. Because as we've been seeing in the fulfillment of this dream, what the author is doing is bringing to the forefront once again, the absolute and total sovereignty and providential control that God has over all circumstances. How he is using this world crisis of the famine to work particularly in these brothers' lives. To move their story along, to carefully and providentially move every single piece of their life, to bring them kind of to Egypt, then back to Canaan, to Egypt, back to Canaan. He's working, he's working, he's working in their life, leading them to this time where they are in Joseph's house before Joseph, bowed down in submission. Why did God do it all? What is God up to with the brothers? Well, he does it all so that through meeting their brother, the brother, these, this set of brothers can experience the lavish, overwhelming grace of God poured out on their life. The undeserving, unmerited, freely given, rich, lavish, satisfying generosity and goodness of God. Here we see something of just who God is, the, 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 a, a display of his character, that he will use everything, every detail, he'll move in great power so that his people can know goodness and lavish abundance in their life. That we might look at our life and think, 
God, what are your sovereign purposes? Why are you, what, why are you bringing all of the details in certain ways? Why did you let me su succeed in that exam, but then fail in that one? And why did I not get into the university I wanted to and end up in Manchester? Or why did I get that job or not that job? Or why, do, why have I got a boss that I hate? And why did he give me such a hard time? Or why did that girl dump me when I was 13 years old? God, I haven't got over it. We can, all of these details of our lives, why is God working it? He's always working to exactly the same end that we see here. That he can pour out his overwhelming, abundant, undeserved grace on our life. That we might know the overflow of his generosity and goodness time and time and time again. Like the brothers, we are totally undeserving before God. We have built no credit with him. We don't deserve even the smallest crumb from his table that we, our good behaviour before him will get us nowhere. We have fallen short of him. We deserve punishment. But because he is El Shaddai, because he is God Almighty with all power, the one who then chooses to use that power to be the God of promise, to be the God of blessing, to be the God of favour and goodness poured out into his people for generation after generation after generation, we can see that the divine designs for him in our life are that he might lead us to continually experience time and time and time again the outpouring of his grace and his goodness in our lives. That just like the brothers, he leads us to be with our brother. He leads us into the presence of our brother, Jesus Christ. Our brother who also made a costly and extravagant sacrifice. And here we see Joseph very much leads us to see and get a glimpse of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't show us to him, doesn't show him to us completely. Because while Joseph gave richly and abundantly out of all that he had, Jesus Christ gives richly and abundantly all that he has. As the Apostle Paul writes a bit later on, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, that's our sake, for our sake, he became poor. So that you, again, that's us, so that we, by Jesus's poverty, might become rich. Now that is a loaded, theologically rich passage, but what it is saying is, Jesus Christ was rich, but he willingly gave all that he had to become poor so that we might become rich. At the cross, Jesus willingly emptied himself out so that we might receive all of him, that we might receive him as our gift. And this is the major difference of what we see of how, the, how Joseph provides for the brothers and how Jesus provides for us, because we don't now have Jesus, the one that is able to, to move things in our life and change our circumstances to make our life better. No, the richness and the abundance that we get in Jesus is simply through knowing him, simply because we have him. You might think that's a little detail. Why does it matter so much? 
it matters so much because it means that we are not now waiting for Jesus to move. We're not waiting for Jesus to give us this and to move in this particular way and to have this in order to know goodness and plenty and bounty in our life. But because we have Jesus, because he has given himself to us and we have received him, we have all we could ever need. We have received our all in all in Jesus Christ. We are not now waiting for lockdown to finish. We're not now waiting for this particular change to come about so that we can be happy and know joy once again. And in this global crisis, I think we will continue to see our lives pulled this way and that. Just like the brothers kind of taken Canaan to Egypt, Canaan to Egypt. I've already spoken to plenty of people who, whether it's a, a job or a relationship or a fledgling business or something else, university course, where they, they, they thought, I, I thought it was going to be this and I was told it was going to be this and this would happen. But now my, the rug's been taken from under my feet and it's this and it looks very different. That I think lots and lots of things are going to continue to change for us. I just find it so encouraging that we can look at this and know that our God is at work providentially in all of the details. He knows exactly what is to happen and he turns it all to lead us to continue to get more of Jesus, to continue to experience more and more of the grace of Jesus poured out for us time and time and time again. He leads us to feast on the bread of life, that is Jesus Christ. He leads us to know the joy and the lightness of just being in his presence and being merry with him. And in this final moment, just as I bring things to a close, we get a glimpse into what we will see more fully in chapter 44 next week. Verse 34. As the food served, portions were, served, were, were taken to the brothers from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And I think, what on earth is going on here? Well, the last time that this group of brothers saw the youngest brother or the younger brother being favoured unfairly, it resulted in that brother being thrown into a pit and sold off into slavery. But here, there's no jealousy, there's no envy, there's no hatred. There is only joy, there's only contentment, there's only happiness. But here we see the activity of God that's been going on in the brothers' lives for the last two chapters it's beginning to change them. It's beginning to transform them and ready them all the more for the moment where God truly brings them back together. And it's this same hand of, love, of loving grace that the brothers are experiencing that is at work in Jacob's life as well. But it, his story in this account looks like loss but it is a loss that, as we see as the chapters go on, is going to lead him to experiencing this same bounty and overwhelming provision of God. That we are going to see as it goes on that nobody misses out. That in God's economy, he is able to move all circumstances so that all of his people can continue to experience his goodness and know his favour poured out. He's such a good God. He's a giver. And he wants to overwhelmingly provide for all of us. And he has done in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. 
Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that we come to you, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You, we come to you, our El Shaddai, God Almighty, and we can call you Father. That you are carefully and kindly at work in all of the detail of our lives so that we can know the bounty and richness of the provision of Jesus Christ. But that's what you're about. You're about leading us more and more into seeing Jesus more clearly, understanding his grace more fully, and understanding and, and receiving all of the goodness that he has for us. We thank you that you have given us Jesus Christ. We declare now that it is not about how you might be able to change the details of our lives that will make us full and make us satisfied and make us joyful. But we turn again once, once again to Jesus Christ knowing that as we fix our eyes on him, as we receive him, we have found the answer to all of our searching, the answer to all of our questions. We thank you, Jesus. We love you, we adore you, and we cherish you today. Amen.